Welcome to the Homelad Show, episode 35, Open SSH. And for those of you watching the live show, and I see the comments in already, I, we didn't realize when we created it, for some reason, it defaulted to PM, you know, because I think everything we've done in military time, because that would solve that problem. But as yeah. soon as the problem did occur, yes, it's actually AM when we record this. Uh, me and Jay are both in Eastern Standard Time, so it is 11 o'clock Eastern Standard Time right now. Yep. <laughs> Uh, you know, we could probably do a nighttime recording at some point, but we're kind of tired. Only oh, be a little tired or playing video games by 11. <laughs> we're not in the creative yeah. mode anymore. We're all I play, creative. I play video games until I sleep at that point. Yeah, we're, we're created out sometimes play. by 11 o'clock at night. <laughs> yeah, uh, we fun decided. Well, oh, fun times. Let's talk about SSH, is going to be the topic of today's show. and it's pretty universal, not just for Linux, but even in BSD. Uh, it, it's kind of how a lot of the internet is controlled now, I would say, like for all the different servers and the management. It's a really, really popular topic. There's a lot of different methodologies um, for by which you can manage it. And it's one of the, amazing. All the different things have been bolted onto it, such as file, file transfers or mm -hmm. you know, frequently in Ansible. You're going to use SSH and key management in order to uh, manage fleets of machines, many firewalls, many of your higher end firewalls. This is ways you can manage them uh, You know, via the command line. You're going to SSH in and it's brands like Cisco and everybody else are using it, not just the brands built on open source platforms, open source software. So we figured it's a great topic. And uh, what do you think? We think we got to do a sponsor role first though, before we get in there. Yeah, we may as well pay the bills, right? <laughs> got to pay the bills. And that's Linode. They've been sponsoring the show since the beginning. We love Linode. It's If you're listening to this podcast, it's literally how you downloaded it and got it there. The website and the infrastructure is hosted on there. Jay has many things hosted on Linode. And to tie it into today's episode, Jay manages all that with SSH. Uh, that's how we keep things up to date. We SSH in, we push all the updates and set it all up, configure it that way. Uh, Linode's been a great sponsor of the show. It's a great place to host anything that you don't want hosted on your own home lab. You get to use Linode's lab to get going. We have an offer code down below where you can get started with that. And uh, thanks again, Linode, for sponsoring us on this. And yeah, yep. this is definitely a great place to set up SSH because I've got a whole video I've done on how to do like reverse proxies and stuff like that. And it's really easy um, using the, the reverse proxy system and SSH. You can tie these things together and it's just, oh, it's really simple. Those, you know, it's not a scope of what you're doing today, but it's one more thing that you can throw up in Linode, throw SSH, throw uh, proxy shells on there and away you go. Yep. It's, it's uh, great. I'll leave a link to that video down in the uh, show notes for today as well. And Jay also... We're going to talk a lot about SSH. Jay's going to take the lead on this, but I'll leave yeah. links to his videos on SSH because there's yep. Jay's done some extensive tutorials on it uh, very recently too. So, yeah, there's a beginner's guide that's long. It's one of my longer videos. I don't remember how long. It's either 30 minutes, 60 minutes. I can't remember. I have a few that are like really long because they're like deep dives. So I have one already there, and also a, a video about SSH uh, config files. The client config file just launched recently. I have like two more videos recorded about SSH that are coming soon. So there's going to be no shortage of content in the short term for SSH, including today's podcast. So it should be a good yeah. episode. In SSH is one of those things. And there's also a book, uh, Michael Lucas, SSH Mastery. Also recommend reading that. There's so yep. much you can learn about SSH. There's just, it's a big topic. We'll just say that. <laughs> All right. <laughs> it really is. It really is. So 
Um, to take it from the beginning, because this is one of those topics that I feel like, yeah, we co probably could have covered this earlier, right? Um, because this is kind of like the thing you do to configure pretty much everything in your home lab. So I feel like a lot of our audience is already going to know the basics because unless they just started a home lab today or this week, they probably used SSH. But um, just to kind of take it from the beginning, um, it's the remote management tool of choice for pretty much every Linux and Unix user out there because, you know, I don't know about you, but I'm not trying to drive to a data center if I'm not hosting locally or even just go into the other room and connect a keyboard and a mouse and a monitor just to do a one-off task. I want to just log in quickly, do the thing, and then log out. And that's what SSH allows us to do. There's a client um, application and then there's the server application. The client application is, as far as I know, it's installed on basically every Linux distribution. Um, and I'm talking about the client, not the server. So that way you can connect to a, you know, a server via SSH, but having the client doesn't allow anyone to connect to you. That's why it's okay to have the SSH client on your machine by default. Open SSH, even though it's useful, is one of those things you only install if you actually plan on using it. If you, for whatever reason, have another solution and you never feel like you'll use it, then disable it because everyone wants in via SSH, especially if it's publicly available. Because a server component, once you install that and start the process, then your server or computer workstation or whatever is, you know, accepting connections from the internet right away. So it's one of those things that you only install and set up if you need, but honestly, most of us are going to use it. I I, I think it's safe to say probably 90% of us at this point will probably um, need SSH. So um, you probably will have it running, but again, if you have another solution, then, um, you know, turn it off. Yeah. And this just goes back into your standard principles of least privilege. Um, you don't need software on that you're not going to use. You don't need ports open. So in, by default, like if you saw like a Ubuntu desktop distribution, and a lot of the desktop distributions don't have SSH server running in the background by default, that's fine. If you don't need it because uh, you're just going to be using the UI, um, you can still SSH out from it. You just don't necessarily need that server running on it. Yep. And there's a, there's some security things we'll get into as well, because, I mean, is I think anything that's really useful can be bastardized into something that's going to hurt us. I mean, because, I mean, if it gives us a benefit and especially convenience, and it's also potentially convenient for someone else as well. So the, the goal, of course, is that you want to use SSH, but you don't want like someone else that you don't even know to use it to, you know, start deleting your files or whatever. So um, it's a very, it's a very important remote management tool. And it, um, especially with the pandemic, and I hate even saying that word because, you know, um, we're trying to escape from that with technology and fun home lab things. But um, the reality is that more of us are working from home than ever before. So I would think it's safe to say that a lot of us are using SSH, even some people that probably weren't before. Because, you know, if your corporate office is closed or whatever, then how are you going to, you're not going to drive there to start working on your server. So SSH, you just basically use SSH as a command. It's just that simple with the IP address or host name. If the username is different, then of course you include that as well. And then you have a shell on the remote server, just like you were um, actually literally physically in front of it. It'd be essentially the same thing. So whatever your user has access to do, you could do from that connection, regardless of where you are versus the you know endpoint end machine because you know you can go through the internet to get to it if it's a local machine you can go through your lan um and that's when you start to get creative because you can define how you can get from point a to point b and how to make it so that other things can't sneak in too 
And from a developer standpoint, one of the things I've always found really useful in SSH, and I still use this a lot, if you take the time to build your SSH config file, or even if you're doing a one-off, being able to port forward via SSH to take ports available on an internal server and not necessarily that you want them exposed. So I get over to that server with SSH. Then from there, I bring over some ports. I've actually demoed this when I talk about using things like SyncThing. I don't need to publicly expose that so I can manage SyncThing remotely. Part of my SSH config file brings SyncThing and its web interface to my local host port. And I have this configured on systems when I SSH into them and I want to manage SyncThing, I can manage it. I can use the nice web UI to get things done in SyncThing, but then not even leave it so it's exposed at all. It's all wrapped up into SSH. And in SSH, you lock it down being key only. So now you've added one extra layer that makes it that much more difficult to get to something, but then you still have the ease of use yourself when you want to admin something such as sync thing and pull that web port or whatever port you want to pull. And from a developer standpoint, this could be really easy because then you could just start building some of the services to run tunneled through SSH. You can tie many of them together. So they bring them all to your local machine for development without having to fully expose this to the world, especially when it's in development mode. <laughs> Right. Yeah. There, there's an SSH is one of those things that you go down the rabbit hole of learning it. It's easy to get started. I mean, you can get started in five minutes, but to master it takes a long time. And uh, to piggyback on what you said, you know, that book is awesome by, by uh, Michael Lucas, the SSH mastery book. Um, I read it. I didn't read the new edition, though, because um, I know there's a new edition since the time I read it. But I think it's required reading, in my opinion. I, anyone who's starting on Linux, I, I mean, starting with Linux, I say get that book or, or BSD, anything, because it teach, it taught me some things I didn't even know about SSH after having used it for a long time. So um, and it's not a long read. It's not like this big Bible. It's like this small little book. I mean, you can probably get through it in an hour, maybe two hours or so. Um, in one sitting, you just block out some time, and then by the end of that book, you'll know SSH pretty well. But we're going to cover quite a bit of to the topics here. But there's some advanced topics we won't get to today, and I think some of those, if not all of those, will be covered in that book. Yeah. You can't have too much SSH knowledge. That's what we're trying to tell you. <laughs> <Yep>. So <laughs> books are um, good for reference, too. So <laughs> Yeah, it really is. So, okay, so we know what, what you know, the, the main goal of SSH is just to get a shell on a remote system so you can run commands on that system from from wherever you happen to be. But there's there's other things too that are that come along for the ride like SCP secure copy protocol or is it just secure copy? I always forget. Um, either way, SCP allows you to transfer files over SSH. So if you have a file you want to put on your web server, you could just SCP that file to your web server and forego FTP altogether, as you should anyway, because FTP, why? Why in 2021? Don't use FTP. SCP everything over to your server, put it in the appropriate place. Um, you could do that via SCP. And a lot of people don't know this, but you can actually uh, use SSH for a one-off command. You could do SSH user at myserver.com space command, could be sudo apt update, for example, whatever the command is. And it'll literally connect to that server, run that command and disconnect. So if you want to run a one-off command, you don't even have to maintain a persistent connection. You could just literally use SSH to throw a command at a server and get the results on your screen. And um, I learned that a lot later in my career than I would like to admit. <laughs> and it's one of those things. It, uh, you can also do things like you can create custom when you're building your SSH config. You can actually build commands into your SSH uh, config yep. files. When you SSH to something, it can either execute commands on that server or even you can create a name called like shut down the system and you can then have it just go and execute a shutdown or a restart command on your behalf based on that. You can get really clever with it. Oh yeah, there's a lot of clever things you could do with it. Another one that we'll, we'll 
um, actually may as well talk about it now is SSHFS, which is another one of those things that um, I, I want to say come along for the ride, but you do actually have to install on most distributions an extra package to make this work. But essentially, it gives you the ability to have a uh, mount point, any folder that you have access to, that your user has access to on the, on the remote server, you can literally just connect to that server and have it set up a local directory to be mounted to a remote directory such that you can work with that directory and add files to it much in the same way that you would with um, CIFS or NFS or something like that. You could actually just set up a connection to a folder mount point and then do what you got to do, disconnect. Um, and that to me, although it's a little bit slower than NFS, it's usually easier to set up in my opinion, because there's nothing much, if anything, to do on the remote end. Because again, any folder you have access to, you could set a mount point to that folder on um, from your machine to that endpoint machine. So if you're working with uh, files, that's a great thing to do. I mean, for example, if on uh, one of my other podcasts, I wanted to update the album art because I had new album art for or podcast artwork. So I literally set up an SSHFS connection from a local folder to the uploads directory on the remote end. And using EasyTag, I hit that one folder with um, the album art in one shot and just um, updated every single file just because, you know, why would I want to go through and re-upload every single individual file? I just mounted that directory and worked with it as if it was a local directory disconnected and I was um, all good. So um, that, that goes back to the creativity thing, because once you learn SSHFS, which I need to do a video on anyway, um, and it's in my book, my, my, my latest book, it's not that hard to use. It's a powerful tool. Yes. In, uh, it, in most of the Ubuntu-based distributions that I've used, it's always been, you can type in, is it uh, SFTP colon slash slash the uh, system name, and you can just mount it right through the GNOME file system manager to get things done. A little yeah. bit of warning, though, it's not going to be the fastest. So even right. if you have a 10 gig connection between you and a local device on a network, uh, it won't saturate a 10 gig. There are some limitations to transferring things when it comes to just raw transfer power over it. And I bring that up because it's also the way you can set up two TrueNAS systems by default, like the next and yes options when you're setting up replication. They actually will use SSH to transfer, but when they're doing that, um, you'll run into some speed limitations. I've had people tell me, hey, my replications aren't working quite as fast. I'm like, yeah, if you're trying to do them all over SSH, that's a limitation. There's an advanced option uh, to get you faster on that, uh, where you actually use Netcat to get raw sockets open. A little outside of the topic of this, but um, my point is, don't expect just it's not a replacement for Samba or NFS. <laughs> right. It's not going to be where you saturate the uh, 10 gig pipe on there. Uh, that's not going to happen. One gig pipes is not a problem. But once you get beyond one gig, SSH just has some limitations for file transfer speed. Still reliable, right. still secure, still solid. Just it has some speed limitations. Yeah, I agree. I would say SSHFS is really great for one off things like you want to mount this directory to do some work, but you don't think you're going to need a mount to that directory ever again. You just want to set something up temporarily and then just do whatever you're going to do, then just shut down the connection when you're done. So that way you don't have to edit the um, FS tab file, for example, just for a one-off thing. Just use SSHFS, even though it's slower. It's not that much slower, but right. you'll, you'll still start to see some um, you know, drawbacks in speed when you really start to hammer it. But you know, in my case, if I'm just updating artwork in a bunch of MP3s, I mean, that's easy. So yeah, was, it, it, it's got yeah. way great use cases. I just know yeah. that's a topic that's come up a few times on my channel because I talk about TrueNAS and yes, TrueNAS uses it, but it's just a speed issue. So <laughs> exactly right. 
So I did a video recently about the SSH config file, which I'm going to summarize now, um, just so make sure everybody's aware of it. If you want more information, you can watch the video. But essentially, the SSH config file is not present by default. I mentioned that the SSH client is installed by default on every distro I've tried, but the config file for the client is not. And I'm talking about the config file that would go into your .ssh directory. Inside your home directory, it's called config, just config inside that directory. And in there, you could put whatever host entries you want. Um, for example, you could have a, a server that's on a different port, maybe because you know by default, I guess I should have mentioned this first, SSH uses port 22. If you don't tell it to use a different port, then that's what it's going to use. But you could switch that port over to something else if you don't want it to be easily discoverable by bots, keeping in mind that it, you know, you're still only, only like one port scan away from someone figuring out what port it's running on. But it's an easy change to make. It takes just a minute. And you give the SSH client the dash P option with the port number, and you, you'll get right in. But you don't have to re, you know, remember that, especially at one point I was using um, a different port number per server, which was confusing. But um, I actually, in my SSH config file, had all of that information in there. So I never had to like memorize it. Because any parameter you could put on the command line for SSH, you could put in the config file to simplify that, including username, the host name, um, a whole bunch of different things you can put in there. Um, so you can watch the video, but if you find yourself typing SSH commands that are you know ginormous and super long, then you, you're probably not using the SSH config file and you, you most likely should be using it. You know, I, I find it really handy and I'm being super simple because I use sync thing. I have a private sync thing repository and my SSH config file is aliased. That way it syncs on all the different systems that I use. But anytime I'm setting up a lab or a demo that I do for my videos, I've all the time I have two different sections of that sync of that config file that you can put little comments in or break them apart. So the bottom section is all my random test servers. But anytime I create a new random test server, if I spin one up for a demo, you know, you spin something up in Linode and you're given an IP address and it's where I'm going to run it. I'll call it, you know, while I'm doing my WireGuard demos, for example, I'll call it WireGuard 1, WireGuard 2, set that up because I don't have to memorize the IP addresses. I'll put the username and the password. If I have to do some port forwarding, I'll put it all in there. It's really handy to build those files and get used to building them. It yep. also gives you easy ways you can add names to all your servers and by the way something that is amusing to me and some of my staff because we have a jump server where i have a config file as well you can even put a little icons in there so when you ssh to free pbx it's got the little phone icon because yes emoji uh the unicode i think or the unicode emojis they're also they're supported in there so it looks cool when you ssh into them you don't have to remember them as long as you don't start with the emoji as long as it's at the end so it's like ssh free pbx and it puts the little phone thing at the end of it because it's novel. That's, that's hilarious yeah that, that's i use so a kangaroo funny. for the jump box throw it out there <laughs> that is brilliant that's absolutely brilliant um so i think um we'll probably go back to some of the fundamentals or something because i'm sure i i missed something but um we definitely need to talk about the security aspect of it and put some emphasis on that because like I was explaining earlier, if um, you, you have something open to the public internet, I don't care if it's a web server, SSH, then people are going to try to hammer it. If it's a web server, then obviously you do want that accessible because you're serving a web page. So it makes sense to open that up to the world because that's the whole point of a web server. But SSH should not be open to the world. And if it's not even running, then it's especially harder for people to use it against you if it's not even running in the first place, if not impossible. But you know, if you're wanting to use it and it's not running, well, you can't use it yourself either. So if you want to get into the server and the SSH client or yeah, the SSH server just goes down, 
there's nothing you could do about that. You have to find another way into the server to start the process. But the, I mean, that sounds obvious, but the reason why I bring this up is because um, one layer of security that's super easy to implement if, uh, if it's applicable to you is to not have the SSH service running when you're not going to use it. So for example, if you have a server that's remotely available in your home lab, um, and let's just say you go to bed at 11 at night, right? So why should your SSH service be running after 11 if you are sleeping? There's no reason for that. You could easily set up a cron job around 11 o'clock at night when you're going to bed to shut down that SSH service. And then if you wake up at six in the morning or something, you could have a cron job that starts the service. So that way, while you're sleeping, there's no way in. Um, and that makes sense because unless you have nothing to do at three in the morning, um, you're probably not going to be wanting to do stuff on your server. But then the downside here is if you are uh, managing a server for a client, then um, they call you in the middle of the night that their service is down and you have an SLA for 24 hours. Well, you need that SSA service running just in case you need to get in. So if there's no reason for you to ever access SSH overnight, have it shut off overnight. Um, you can even shut off your entire server if it doesn't need to be publicly available at all. Um, but that's just the easiest thing to do. Just, just um, you know, don't have it running if you're not using it. That's just kind of like the first place to start. And then from there, we're going to talk about some other things that we're going to bolt on top that'll help make it more secure. Now, one of the things that is a debate a little bit, I, you know, the best way to do it is not to expose SSH to the general right. internet, but there are also at the time of recording this moment, a fully patched SSH server properly configured, fully patched. We'll add, put those two caveats in there is secure. There's not a right. known way to get in there. You can use things uh, to fail to ban or um, the other one that we've been testing, Jay, that is CrowdSec. CrowdSec. I, I wanted to say another crowd word that's not related. Um, but yep. CrowdSec, you can use tools to help, you know, deal with and combat people hammering away at it so it doesn't waste resources and, and block them. Uh, but overall, you can expose it. Uh, it's still preferred, like anything, wrap it up in a VPN so you've made it a little bit harder to discover the services on there. Uh, but you can expose it on there. Uh, but there are properly configured being the caveat. Jay's going to dive into a little what a properly configured SSH server looks like. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, for sure. And, um, you know, when it comes to SSH, it's, it's just, um, you're right. One of the things is, I mean, if it's fully patched, then generally speaking, you're good, right? Because it, you got, I mean, SSH itself is pretty secure. The only thing to keep in mind is if your password sucks, then it's, it's definitely, someone's going to get in for sure. I don't care if you have all the patches or not. But the thing is, if your your password is monkey123 and you have no other protections in place at all, then it's only a matter of time. So obviously you have to use some common sense here and don't have it. Actually, as we'll talk about shortly, having password authentication enabled at all is a bad idea. Right. But if you do have to have it enabled, then at least have a really long password that's randomly generated. Um, that's, that just makes sense, right? So one thing that you could also do, but th this is going to be a very limited subset of our audience, though, because um, I, I think the majority of home lab users are going to have residential internet. So that means they probably don't have a static IP. If you do have a static IP to your cable modem or you know your, your internet device, then you could make it such that the firewall only accepts SSH connections from that IP, meaning your local inter internal IP. So 
you could actually have a VPN service to get yourself into your network and then you could SSH into whatever or just leave it off altogether. Um, I mean, leave off the public access altogether and just use VPN. But um, at the very least, if you do have a static IP, then you could actually use that to kind of firewall um, what can access that. But with residential internet, you don't really know what your public IP is going to be you know, tomorrow, let alone an hour from now. So that is probably something a lot of people can't do. Right. Yep. So um, going further from there, because, you know, just starting from the bottom, working our way up, um, I talked about password authentication being bad. And that means if you can SSH into your server, I mean, with, with no configuration change, it's just going to ask you for your password, you type it in, you're, you're connected. But if you can get a password prompt, then so can someone else, possibly. So they'll just keep trying passwords over and over again. But if you disable passwords, then, okay, you can't type a password if you're not prompted for one. But how do you get into it? That's when you set up SSH public key authentication, where you have a public key and a server key or a public key and a private key. And what that allows you to do is connect via public key authentication. And then once you know that works, you could shut off password authentication altogether. So if someone doesn't have that actual SSH key, then they're not able to get into the server. And that's going to increase your security tenfold just by doing that alone. That's the best thing you could do of anything on the list, uh, aside from shutting down SSH altogether. Public key authentication, um, in my opinion, should be mandatory. It should be something that you're walked through when you set up SSH on everything, and everything should just you know default to have the password being disabled. But um, we're not quite there yet, unfortunately. Yeah, the nice thing is once you do that, I've I imagine there's probably even some bots that quit wasting time with those. They're like, oh, it's whatever they're not going to try random key once you go for a key based authentication yeah. uh you dive into how that works and looking into cryptography it's a rabbit hole but boy it's you'll understand why that works so well with key based once you have a good secure cryptographic key it's one really convenient because you can just log in it's often key managed authentication is how you'll use tools like ansible so you're not trying to type a password to all the machines but the other side of it too just the level of simplicity that gives and and peace of mind because those cryptographic keys provided you don't lose your private yeah. keys um that recently happened in the news someone accidentally sent a private key out an accident instead of a public one a very Ooh. large place over in europe but anyways that does happen as long as you don't lose track of your private keys they're solid you know you can publicly yep. list your public side of the key so <laughs> and if your key does leak out hopefully you um, have a process in place to withdraw that key from all your servers but also hope i'm hoping that you set up a passphrase on that key because it, i mean is it possible somebody could use the key with a passphrase and, and get your passphrase of course it's possible but unlikely if they don't have the passphrase they can't unlock the key to use it they can have the key and in my opinion, even if you have like a really crazy long passphrase that nobody will be able to guess, it's randomly generated or whatever. Um, the fact is, if your key leaks, you should still, you know, get that off of all your servers and never trust it again if that right. private key were to leak. But um, at the very least, you have a layer of protection that will slow them down, if nothing more, um, that they don't have that passphrase. They can't use the key. So when it asks you to set up a passphrase, it's basically like you're putting in a password to use the key which is exactly what it is. It's similar to entering a password to get into the server, but it's not a password for the server. It's a password to unlock the key to get to the server. And um, that's another thing I feel is pretty much mandatory. And um, you know, some people feel like SSH keys, one of the best things about them is you're automating your connection. You just SSH server and you're done, you're in. It, you know, your, your key gets you right in there. But 
um, if you put a passphrase on there, you're entering a password every time, which some people say defeats the purpose because you know you're using an SSH key in getting around passwords, but that's not why you're using an SSH key. It's not to get around passwords like so many people think. Yes, you can do that. The whole point of an SSH key is to strengthen your connection. So definitely have a passphrase because why not? It's just another layer of protection. And you could cache that passphrase with the SSH agent locally. So you're not putting that in like 15 times during the day. You could cache it for a certain amount of time on your local client, and then you'll just get right in until that session expires or whatnot. So um, I definitely recommend everyone use a passphrase. And there's more information about that in um, a lot of my videos, actually. I think it's something I covered several times. Yeah, and kind of related is what about hardware keys like YubiKey yep. or any of those? Um, yeah, those are a good idea as well. One thing to be certain of, and me and Jay one at some point will dive into that topic probably on the Home Map Show here is hardware token yep. keys. Uh, one thing if you're using YubiKey is make sure you get a pair of them because if you tie authentication to a YubiKey and you don't know what you did with it, right. uh, that can be a problem. So just if you're ordering one, you don't order a YubiKey, you should always have YubiKeys that you set up. Right. One goes in some well-protected place, maybe a safe, a safe deposit right. box, wherever you think is a good place to put it. Um, and then you use the other one, but that way you have a plan B. If you go, I don't know where that went or someone tries to wander off with it, uh, you don't suddenly become also denial of service yourself by not being able to get in anything. Right. Absolutely. And um, so earlier you mentioned you, um, I'm trying to blank. Oh, fail to ban. I, I almost lost yeah. the word there. Fail to ban and crowd sex. So um, I, those aren't specific to SSH, but they do protect SSH. Now there was a tool called deny host a long time ago that was dedicated to SSH, but last time I checked, it's no longer maintained. So we can't use it. But uh, fail to ban, what that does is it watches a service for failure. So it looks at your log file. So if you have, for example, a web server running Apache and you configure, um, you configure it to look at Apache to see if someone's trying to hammer it and get in. And then what fail to ban will do is if they see that activity or if it sees that activity, it's going to add them to the block list, which is essentially creating a firewall rule. Now, the, by default, it might be like a four-hour ban. But if you think about it, though, if someone is only able to try five times and then they're banned for four hours, that slows them down a lot, like orders of magnitude slower. So if they're trying to brute force a server, it's going to take them a lot longer. It's no longer worthwhile unless it's an extreme targeted attack. At that point, they just won't have time. I mean, just years or centuries will pass before they could try every single password. And by default, fail to ban will uh, protect SSH. It'll look at your SSH log files, look for attempts. I, I want to say it's five by default, five attempts. I could be wrong. It might be seven. And if it sees that many number of attempts in a window of time, it's just going to add that IP address to the block list or the firewall, rather. And then that person is going to have to um, go find something else to do because they're probably not going to get into that server anytime soon. Yeah, those are, like I said, this little things like that. And also you should have alerting on. If you have those things, if it's public facing is one thing, don't turn alerting on to yourself because you'll drive yourself nuts because there's so much noise of hammering on them. But they're also good to have on internal servers because the same thing. If suddenly inside of your network, something is constantly trying to log in, one, you should be alerted of it, but two, stopping it from doing it so it doesn't keep guessing is also very valid, you know, very yeah. valid to have on. So it's not something just for public facing only. Uh, it's good practice to have this internally set up because you want to know if something all of a sudden this random device is on my network one where'd it come from and two why is it trying to log into things that it normally doesn't log into yep I, and i also would say if you have logging enabled or alerting enabled 
you absolutely should change the port number that the SSH server is listening on because you're going to minimize the amount of log entries tenfold. Um, you'll still have some noise. You'll still have people trying. But if you have it on the default of port 22, I mean, it, if you change it to another port, it doesn't really secure you all that much better. It's not really that much of a protection. It's just easy to do. But when you do change that port number, you'll have fewer people trying because you'll have a bunch of bots that are trying port 22 on every IP address out there, including yours. And they're gonna keep trying over and over again. So you'll get alerts like all day long, literally all day long. But if you change the port number, then um, you're going to have a lot fewer attempts. Maybe you won't see any on a given day, but um, you might see one or two, but it'll definitely be a lot um, less chatty, so to speak, because you have it on a different port. Someone sees, oh, he doesn't have, he or she doesn't have port 22 open. So, okay, I'll move on to this other server before I try like all the other ones because they're just looking for an easy grab or an easy get low-hanging fruit, basically. And and for fun, go ahead and leave port 22 with a honeypot on it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you could literally, I'm not saying everyone should do this, but I have once. Um, I guess <laughs> do as I say, not as I do, right? Um, I set up a server on Linode one time and I only needed it for like 10 minutes or no, I think it was like a day and I was working on a tutorial and, you know, something came up, you know, it's life, right? That, that happens. So I had to pause the recording and I go do a thing and I don't get back to it until the next day. But meanwhile, I had this server running overnight. It was already owned. Um, I just had a, a, a weaker password because I'm not, my mindset was like, I'm never going to use this server for anything. Nothing important is ever going to go on it. But I had an email from Linode. By the way, there's some uh, crypto miners, some kind of traffic coming from this instance. I'm like, oh, crap, uh, you know, because they're watching this kind of thing. But um, that be that as it may, it, it's just if you have a password that's not very complex and you have password authentication enabled, you just leave it running. They're going to hammer it. It's just the way it is. Unfortunately, yep. it's called... Uh, but what'd you call it? Like background internet radiation? I think yeah, one it's just the background radiation of the internet. I think C. Gibson was one. I first heard him say that. As yeah. I know he says a very accurate way. There's just this persistent noise on the internet poking at things. There's always some server in some closet that no one's ever going to reboot or shut down until it right. dies. Therefore, it's infected with 20-year-old, <laughs> and to think it actually could be running still with some 15 or 20 year old malware just poking at the internet looking for friends. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, change the port number. I mean, you may as well do it. It's still not going to like help you much, but it'll cut the radiation down a little bit, um, cut the noise down, make the log files a lot, a, a lot of lines fewer. I think I saw one log file get to like, like 13,000 lines at one point when password authentication was enabled. So when I say that people are going to be trying it a lot, I'm not joking here. Like literally thousands of times people are going to be trying to hammer it and get in there. So um, you could you could literally set up a server and just tail the authentication logs for like five minutes as soon as you set it up and you'll see people trying to get in. It, it actually freaked me out the first time I saw it in my career when I was new. Oh my God, we're under attack. <laughs> and that's what I literally thought when I saw all those attempts. Um, and I'm like, learn now, you know, that's just the way it goes, unfortunately, but you still got to protect your server as best you can. Yep. Absolutely. So um, when it comes to security, um, fail to ban is definitely a given. Um, to kind of summarize here, change the port number. That's a good idea. Allow users is a good idea too, because that allow or allow groups even that allows you to do what it says. Basically, um, you know, lock it down to just your username and uh, your group membership or whatever. So that'll help stop people that are trying like every known username, root admin or whatever. Um, you can just have your username. It, again, doesn't, you know, 
help a ton, but it's just you layer these security um, layers together and eventually things get to be a lot more secure. So UFW um, being installed is a great thing because you could firewall something to a specific IP address. Fail to ban will ban people that try over and over again to get in, add public key authentication, get that working with a passphrase. Then you disable password authentication altogether, use allow users, allow groups to lock it down there. Um, and just keep layering these things on top of each other, even going as far as shutting off SSH during times is never, ever, ever going to be used because you sleep, like most of us, then you could just have that off and then have it start back up, obviously. So that's something you could do as well. Um, and the, the more, the better, right? Um, hardware keys, YubiKeys, buy a couple of those. We'll be covering those in a future episode. I bought a bunch of them actually recently to do a refreshed video because the one I did was kind of old. I'm not really recommending people watch it at this point, although it's, it's probably still valid. I will um, be refreshing that, um, I want to say probably December, um, maybe as late as January, but I'm, I'm not sure what the timeline is yet, but I'm working it out right now. So we should yeah. be seeing that fairly soon. And one more thing. This is just kind of a one practical to say to do this. I can't say it's yep. a it's a hard yes to do, uh, but don't log in as root. Log in as another user and then sudo your way up to the privilege level you need. This way, right? They have one less piece of information. What is the username you're using to guess at this? Well, obviously, root is pretty much always going to be tried. And and I yep. say when practical because there's some things that are made to be admin by root by design, different appliances and things like that. So it's not like a an automatic everything has to have a separate username. But when you're building a Linux server, easy enough. And I believe in uh, even the bunch of servers. And Debian, I think it all comes in with root disabled by default in the SSH. So you log in as a user and then privilege escalate yourself. Uh, that makes one more layer of security. So that's yep. another little important aspect. It's not necessarily directly SSH, but it is related to the SSH config file because prohibit root is by default on, on a lot of installations. Yep, that's right. Ubuntu uses uh, the cloud images will use the user Ubuntu by default. If you install it yourself, you create your own user account. Root is disabled by default on all Ubuntu, um, with the exception of some cloud providers. They sometimes um, will use root. But if that's the case, that means you use root just long enough to configure SSH and lock it down and delete root access via SSH. Just, just turn that off. Um, so that's an important thing to do as well. Now, when it comes to Debian, it's a little interesting because whether that uh, the root account is locked out or not depends on how you install it. And this is another one of those things I didn't really notice till later in my career because it'll ask you for a root password, basically. My understanding, if I remember correctly, it's been a while since I've done this because I have automation in place. So it's been a while since I've done anything manually. But if you don't actually add a root password when it asks you, it's going to lock down root on Debian. And then yeah. you'll have the, then when you create the normal user, you'll have sudo access. You can do whatever. But if you give it a root password, it's going to allow root. So um, you, you want to make sure that you um, just know that, first of all. Um, you can have the root account if you want it. Just don't allow it via SSH. But just don't fill in that information when it asks you the installer, but fill in the information for the normal user. Then your normal user becomes the sudo user that can do those um, administrative tasks on Debian. And some spins of Debian, like, like um, CrunchBang, for example, CrunchBang++, that, um, if I remember correctly, defaults to just a standard user and no root account enabled. So yeah, yeah. Aside, 
You you can also, um, and I'll mention like GitHub. I have my public facing, uh, public SSH keys in GitHub. And one of the things when you're installing Ubuntu server, it'll ask you your GitHub username. And I can punch in my GitHub username and then it will go ahead and pull my keys down and throw them in and disable password authentication right from the setup of it. So yep. during installation, and this can go a little further, a lot of different cloud tools will allow you to do this. So as it spins up servers, I believe like Linode has this, you can put your public SSH keys in. So when it spins servers, they're already installed. Uh, yep. This can also be done with a uh, cloud in it. Um, am I, I'm correct. No, Jay's the cloud and expert, not me, but yeah, as far as no cloud no. Name, <laughs> well, well, the, only, the only people that are in expert it. are the ones that made it, <laughs> <laughs> but I've, I've, uh, went through the rabbit hole of cloud in it because it's not as well documented as some of the things. I mean, their documentation on their site is nice, but, um, I made the tutorials just because they needed to exist and it was a, yeah. kind of a big deal to take that on, but, um, it's, it's a cool, um, service nonetheless, but, um, when it comes to troubleshooting though, that's, um, Something we should talk about too, but we could probably keep this section short because it, it very much depends on the situation. But when I'm teaching people in person, like um, you know, when I used to work at a physical location, like I would teach people the basics of SSH when they join the company, I would um, get the same complaint from each of them, which is like every time SSH fails and I can't get in, I don't get any information as to why it fails, or I get very limited information about why it fails. And it makes it hard for them to figure out what's going wrong. And that's basically the pain point I think everyone goes through that learns this. And my, I'm not sure if this is 100% accurate, it's just a theory, but I'm pretty sure it's true. I mean, they don't give you information about why it failed because the more information they give you, the more a bad person could use that information to know why it's not working to find a way around it to get into the server. So to give the client as little information as possible is often um, like security through obscurity. It's just not giving you that information. So um you can still get that information and one thing that you can do is if you can't get into the server you can tail the log or someone else can tail the log or whoever can get into the server to tail the log or you could go into your web console if it's a cloud provider and tail follow the var log um off.log if it's debian and ubuntu for example i think it's var log secure on others and have that tail follow going and then on the client try to get in and you'll see on the server side of things Generally speaking, the reason why you can't get in, it'll say something about your SSH key not having the right permissions, for example, which is not going to tell you that on the client side of things. But if you're telling the log on the server side of things, um, you could find your answer real quick. Oh, it's just the permissions. Then you can get that information in a minute. But if you don't, if you didn't know to look for it there, then you could probably try easily an hour googling like crazy trying to figure this out. <laughs> and that's what kind of um, I guess gets in gets a lot of people that are starting out because they don't really know that. So just get in the habit of using tail-f and then whatever the log file is for authentication on your Linux server. And um, you can do that through the web console if you can't get in and then try to get in through the client and then you'll see the errors just show up right there on the server side of things. And then you can figure out why it's not working and fix the problem. And you can get a lot of insight on the client side by going SSH-VV, two Vs, yep. to get more detail. Uh, it's also kind of cool because you can watch what's going on. It'll tell you the back and forth, what it tried, uh, what the different key types that it tried are. It's kind of a, it, it's a nice back and forth learning experience for how SSH negotiates the connection. Yeah. So if you're saying like, if you don't have like password authentication disabled, for example, and right. you, you know, you do have keys set up, but you don't disable the password, then you try it. 
it, it you, basically what's going to happen if it's working is if the key is working, you'll just get right in. But if you're prompted for a password, that means it tried the key, it didn't like it, now it's asking for the password as the next step. So with the SSH-VV, you can see that it says, oh, I'm trying this key name, I'm trying that key name, and it tries a bunch of them. And then it doesn't think that any of the keys are appropriate, then it asks for the password. Oh, it's a key issue, that's why I need to figure that out. And on the server side of things, it might complain about the permissions. On the local client side of things, it's you can see it cycling through all the keys, it's not happy, something it doesn't like. And um, you can pretty much figure out exactly what it is. Um, if it's a client issue altogether, then that's especially where the dash BV option will shed some light on that. Yeah, one of the uh, things, if you're making SSH keys, one of the things you have to do, especially with your private key, is make sure it's not set to like global readable. Right. And that's a weird SSH problem you run into. I can't, I created keys, Tom, but I can't get into there. Well, yeah. if you do a dash VV, it'll tell you that they're publicly readable and therefore they won't be used. So there's little things that the client side will cause um, problems. And it's just quick, uh, you know, take the time, read the, read the error message. <laughs> yep. So, um, yeah, I mean, there's so many other topics that we can, we can cover, but I think that since we have like the basics of SSH, we could go into we could just segue into other things, you know, later on the in the life of the podcast. Just the different types of um, things you could tack onto SSH. Uh, we didn't even talk about SSH certificates, for example. That's another thing we can add to it um, at another time. Um, yeah, so there's a lot of things about it, but knowing the basics first, we you know we're covering that today, so that way we can um, build on that in the future. Yeah, absolutely. Jay's got a whole video on there where he dives deeper into this topic because uh, we can't really represent here all the visual aspects of learning, like configuring the host file, looking at its structure. Um, you know, it's the structure is host, the name, the host name, user root, local forwards. If you have them in there, identity files you want to use, but uh, you kind of need to get those spaced properly. And it's easier to show that visually. And we have separate yep. videos where we talk about that. I believe I have videos on SSH. Jay has videos on SSH. We'll leave some of those out in the show notes because that's where you can visually go through and really dive deeper into those. Yep. And there's more SSH goodness coming on my channel within the next couple of weeks. So definitely subscribe and you can watch the ones I have yep. now and also the ones that are coming. And get that book by Michael Lucas. So SSH, yeah. SSH Mastery, Open SSH, Putty Tunnels and Keys. And uh, there were some comments earlier when I posted about the book was the uh, artwork by Michael Lucas is great. So I'll throw, I'll throw a link to that book in the show notes as well. So yep. I think it's required reading easily. Yeah. And I'll throw it one more time in the chat. It's really easy to find. It's there, I don't think there's any other book with the title. So I just typed in Google SSH Mastery and it came right up. So easy one to find. And Michael Lucas is awesome. I actually have an interview with Michael Lucas, man. He's a prolific book writer when it comes to tech and uh, his books are quite enjoyable. So they really are. He's really good. He's, you know, if there's a frequent guest we have shouted out on here, it would have, well, guess it was on my channel. I think we should probably have him on a home lab show sometime, but mm -hmm. uh, it's definitely Michael Lucas. He's, uh, he's uh, definitely a gem of a person. Uh, he happens to be local to me and Jay. So we've, we had to meet him in a few events, but uh, definitely fun. And as when we brought him up, we had Wendell on a few episodes ago. We, as soon as we mentioned Michael Lucas, Wendell reached behind him and pulled out like a stack of Michael Lucas books. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I really admire the fact that he's uh, self, uh, self publishing. Yes. Which, um, in my opinion, you know, even though I'm a hypocrite for saying this, but in my opinion, that's the better way to go. Self-publishing for sure. Um, because it's the harder way to go is why you didn't do it. <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, it's an ADD thing, I think, too, because um, if I sometimes having a, a deadline over me um, helps me a lot mm -hmm. because it's like, oh, I have to get it done. 
by that date, I have to get these chapters in by these dates. And I'm going to definitely do that. But in the absence of those dates, I'll probably procrastinate, unfortunately. So um, yeah. if Michael Lucas can do it, um, you know what? That's, that's the best way to do it. I, I really <laughs> admire the fact he's able to do that. Yeah, he pulls it off. He's a lot of fun. Yep. You can follow him on Twitter if you just want to see his musings as well. He he can also just be entertaining in general. So, <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much for joining us and uh, talk to you next time. Take care. Thank you, guys.